night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. It's Wednesday on the West, Thursday on the East. Many of you are stuck somewhere in between. Welcome to Beyond Reality Radio with me, Jason Hawes, and the always awesome J.V. Johnson. Um... We've been talking about Jack the Ripper on and off for over 130 years. Well, not you and me personally, but... No, I mean, we'd be pretty old. <laughs> yeah, but, so. the, but the crime community, uh, the legend, lore, uh, public opinion, you know, it's been one of those mysteries that's endured, obviously, because they haven't been able to find out who the uh, criminal was. Um, but just the gruesome nature of the crimes and the clandestine nature of the crimes and the, and, the, and the victims that were selected and how they were selected and who they were. I mean, it's been one of these just enduring fascinating mysteries and uh, our guest tonight uh, michael hawley has been on the program before jay i'm sure you remember i think it was like june of last year yeah yeah last year he yeah he had written a book about a uh, one of the prime suspects he believed uh, it was dr francis tumblety i believe but now uh, some t- scientists have released some information based on some dna evidence that they think they have solved this mystery and we're going to get into that at night tonight i'm excited about it yeah this should be an interesting show and i actually when i was filming a, an episode of ghost hunters we were over in uh, the uk and uh, we went on uh, one of the one of the jack the ripper tours where they walk you all around the area and uh, i just it, it was it was some gruesome things that happened yeah it really was there are a couple photographs of the crimes and if you if you see those you know you can tell very quickly even though they're very um you know primitive photographs if you will um th- they were just unbelievably gruesome crimes just oh yeah just unbelievable yeah um I can't imagine if we had high res photography back then what that would look well, like. I would, I would hope that they wouldn't show though. Yeah, <laughs> but. yeah. Um, but you know, uh, there's there's a couple other things I wanted to mention because uh, we had a um, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember their names now. Mark Sargent and Patricia Steer on the show yeah, not long ago. Earth. Talking about Flat Earth. Um, there's another group of Flat Earth folks. It's not the same organization who have decided they are going to raise money, charter a cruise ship. And sail to the end of the Earth to prove once and for all that the Earth is flat. Do you you think that maybe they're just trying to raise money for a free cruise? (laughs) Well, hey, I'm not going to judge. I'm not going to guess. But, man, if you were going to do it, this might be the way to do it. Hey, everybody, I want to see if the Earth is round. So do me a favor and pitch in to my (laughs) give Jay and JV a fun trip around the world when lots of alcohol yeah trip. yeah i wonder and, if we uh, could raise money for that for you and me i think yeah as long as we don't get too intoxicated we'll be able to tell if the earth well, is round yeah, or flat yeah our, 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 our uh analysis of the horizon may be off a little bit but oh, uh, it'll definitely be off there's no question on that. <laughs> yeah, this group is called the um flat earth international conference and they are raising the money now and they are looking for a 2020 launch of this excursion um, which again, they say once and for all will determine whether or not this earth is flat, which they believe it is once and for all. So this will be, <laughs> this, this will, will be, be the, determiner. the, uh, the, yeah. Okay. All you do, all you do, all you need to do is contribute to their cause. Right. Um, I, I, I just, don't think I, I don't know. I don't, whatever. No, no, I know what you, I know. I mean, you and I share the opinions it's, of that, well, you know, it's, and I, I can look at it from very different opinions. Do I think the earth is flat? No. Um, do I think that we're living in some sort of a Truman type show uh, environment? Well, I believe if there's a higher power that, yeah, but it's not that the earth is flat. I mean, so. All right, so where do you stand on the, uh, the moon landing hoax? Because that kind of is hand in hand with a NASA that is out to deceive us at every angle. Uh, well, I'm not. not I don't know. Not going to take a position? Well, I just. I don't blame you. I wouldn't. You know, the, it's tough because. I look at it like we have the with the technology now. We still find it extremely hard, um, and we supposedly did it way back then with less technology than is what what is in my Apple Watch. Yeah, and I yeah. so I have a hard time with that. But then again, I have to say that we had some of the brightest minds working on it to make it possible um well i suppose that the fact that the computing power in 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 mission control and on the rockets themselves the the space capsule themselves were less than what your apple watch has that's probably why there were 400,000 people working on it 
Well, yeah, and uh, just uh, when I was younger, back in the uh, the late seventies, I remember going. My father, he was a, he was a computer programmer, and I remember going to the uh, to his work with him on the weekends, and just the computers that were in there were monstrous, just to do small little things. So, yeah, I don't, is it possible it was faked? Well, absolutely, it's possible. Um, I just I don't know. I, I it's just a, it's a tough one for me. You ever see the movie uh, Capricorn One? No, I haven't. Yeah, that's a good one about a a fake a faked landing on Mars. Uh, I think the story is they realized at the last minute that that, that the mission was doomed to failure, but they didn't want to, um, you know, reveal that. So they ended up staging it, and they they put the whole thing together like in the matter of a weekend to stage it. And um, I don't remember the details of of it, but they got caught doing it. Next, eventually. you're going to tell me like the Walking Dead isn't real and all. That stuff. <laughs> I won't. I won't blow burst that bubble for well, you. Well, I mean, I don't. I don't think we're going to be here long, according to uh, you know what this former Polish president was talking about. Um, which Polish president is that, and what is he saying? <laughs> yeah, nice lead in there. Um, all right, so the former Polish president just expressed concerns about a possible alien invasion. So I guess if we're a flat Earth, we don't have to worry about an alien invasion, right? Yeah, I know. If we're domed, we're not talking flat, about like Donald Trump's alien invasion. We're talking about. You know, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, extraterrestrial. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So the former president of Poland surprised his audience at a recent recent speaking engagement when he began discussing UFOs and how an alien invasion might unfold. Lech uh, Walasa, who presided over the country from 1990 to 1995, made the remarks while addressing a civic group in the town of Krasno. Uh, to the surprise of the attendants, the ex-politician indicated that he has become a believer in the idea that intelligent extraterrestrials not only exist, but pose a threat to the safety of Earth. Well, you know, that, you know, that's really ironic. I actually just um, a friend of mine put a, a, a poll on Facebook, you know, like uh, answer one of the, this question. Right. And he said, here's a simple poll for you. And I replied, trying to be a smart guy saying I got even a simpler poll and I put a picture of Lech Luenza up on the on the uh, Facebook post yesterday now he's in the news about UFOs there's some something synchronistic here well and I have a hard time believing what you just said what's that you said your friend Facebook I don't, <laughs> I don't buy it <laughs> okay. but anyways um, moving on from that um, specifically he told he, he stated that there are three levels of intellectual development in other galaxies. And sadly, the human species occupies the lowest tier. Well, that I don't doubt. No, I mean, it's just, uh, how, how we don't. I mean, if you look at Facebook at all, you'll see that. How we don't drown when we're drinking. It's just insane. <laughs> I mean, how the human population's made it. Um, but as such, he cautioned that a visit from these advanced beings could be uh, pretty much just totally uh, destruction for our planet. Uh, should we try to challenge the ETs, he claimed, they will interrupt us and cut us in half, which is kind of a Yeah, I mean, thought. I don't know that, that Lech Walensa is any expert on extraterrestrial life or uh, their military capabilities. Um, but as the as a former president of Poland, in fact, he was the one, you know, Lech Walensa is kind of credited for bringing down the uh, ending the Cold War. Uh, he was the first to really uh, break away from the Soviet bloc, and he's you know he's a hero in Poland. I'm just impressed that you were able to say his name better than me. So. <laughs> but, um, but bottom line, he says the Earth will collapse, and he believes that such an invasion scenario could set the human race back five thousand years, and become a need for our civilization to rebuild from scratch. Um, but you know, don't go running off building your your little shelters yet, JV, because. Uh, well, of course, one might be wondering where he learned this fantastic information, if if he got it from his position in, in the Polish government or not. The former president indicated that his knowledge about aliens and the UFO phenomenon is actually derived from watching YouTube videos. On oh, these well, there you go. Okay, it's just like the rest <laughs> thinking, of us. Yeah. I'm thinking he's got way too much time on yeah, his hands. Yeah, just like well, he's retired. He's, uh, you know. So may- maybe with those, vi- maybe he's a flat earther. Does it say too. how old he is in the piece that you're reading? Because um, no. he's got to be in his 80s or so, I would think. I mean, yeah, or maybe. more. I, I mean, don't know, right? but he's, he's into be, he's, he's into YouTube. Yeah, he's into YouTube, but um, so. I mean, if if he's getting all this information from YouTube, I don't know. Well, maybe he's listening to the program too. Maybe he's, maybe he uh, is. Yeah. So maybe I have, he's streaming the show. I have respect for you, sir. I just not always your beliefs. So. Yeah, no. I, yeah, I'm curious. I mean, it's interesting with any any world leaders willing to take that stance. Um, 
you know, that's that's a bit of an eye opener in itself. I'm anxious to see what the UFO community says about a formal former world leader saying something like that, because I'm sure there'll be more to this story. Well, absolutely. But um, I don't know. It, it's definitely interesting. And you, you would think that a man in his position would have had some sort of inside information yeah. on some of that stuff. Yeah. But uh, who knows? Yeah. All right. Well, so you ready to talk about Jack the Ripper? Uh, no, but let's do it. All I'm right. excited about it. So, yeah, all right. So we're going to take a quick break and get our guest on the line, uh, Michael Hawley. You'll listen to Jason JV Beyond Reality Radio. We'll be back after this. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Our discussion tonight is with a returning guest, Michael Hawley. Now, there's a headline uh, that's making a lot of noise within these circles. And the headline reads, Jack the Ripper possibly identified by DNA. And we're going to talk about that. Michael Hawley has investigated the Jap, uh, Jack the Ripper story uh, and written books about it. He was on, um, what, in June, I think, talking about a book uh, in which he was looking at suspect Dr. Francis Tumblety. Michael, welcome back to Beyond Reality Radio. Great to have you here. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be back. Thanks for coming back. Thank you. You know, it's been a while since you've been on the program, almost a year. This is pretty astounding news, and we're going to get into this. But before we do, I want to reintroduce you to our audience. And we have a lot of new affiliates and new listeners. So some people might not be familiar with your work. So let's start there. When did you first start taking an interest in the Jack the Ripper story? It happened about uh, around 2009 when I got involved. I was waiting for uh, another book I had published uh, with the the publishers, but it was at the time the economy was really hurting, and so um, they were kind of uh, holding off on publishing. So then I uh, had heard about a... um, I'm from Buffalo, New York, and I'd heard about that there was a suspect buried near me in Rochester, New York, and he was a a significant suspect, and his name was uh, Francis Tumblety, which got... uh, uh, got me interested in, in there, and I found out where his his gravesite was, and visited that, and that uh, started the the researching. And so then I got involved with the the folks in uh, in London and England and uh, elsewhere. And uh, it uh, kind of uh, uh, after about over a dozen research articles and two books, uh, there has been just a ton of information, brand new information on uh, the Jack Ripper suspect, Dr. Francis Tumblety. So, uh, and that's what uh, our discussion last year was because uh, we had found that uh, a few years before the Ripper murders, he told this young man as he was showing his uh, surgical knives that all streetwalkers should be disemboweled, and he was already a suspect, and this was just further damning evidence. So it got exciting, and so, uh, but then, uh, but in the, in the meantime, the, the Ripperology community is we're researching every single suspect. And the and even more than that, just the the the, the victims, and at the same time, this is when. Um, but years earlier, about 2014, is when the first time uh, the owner of this shawl had claimed that uh, there was uh, DNA evidence of the, the Jack the Ripper on it, which would be, was a different suspect. So uh, so then uh, we've been quite involved with that as well. When was it uh, announced that there was possible DNA evidence on the shawl? Well, the shawl was uh, a man named Russell Edwards had purchased the shawl in 2007 at an auction. And uh, the Black Museum at the time, and Alan McCormick said that, uh, told him that the case had been solved, that it was uh, Aaron Kosminski, which was, has been a, uh, one of the uh, top suspects. And uh, so what uh, Russell Edwards did... Uh, and he bought it for $3 million. And because wow. there's a little bit of history to that, I could go into the history of the shawl as well. Yeah, but let's do, did, let's do uh, that after the break, though. Um, okay. We've got about a, mi- a minute here, but go ahead. I, don't want to, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I just didn't want to get into those details yet. Okay, and so what happened was he, he had a couple geneticists uh, test and found some uh, a, uh, a blood stain that uh, they assumed that was uh, one of the victims, and then they saw a possible semen stain, 
And so they could only do mitochondrial DNA tests on both, and then they tested the descendants of both those, the victim and the killer, and claimed that there was a match. So they had the DNA of both victim and killer on a shawl. Therefore, that killer was Jack the Ripper. That's kind of what they said in 2014, but they made a fatal error, and I can tell you about that later as well. What let, we have about a minute here. What was what is the reason that this particular story has remained so fascinating to so many people? I mean, we have a lot of serial kill, killers in our history. You know, whether whether they're American or, or British, and and we have many that are unsolved. Why is this one so fascinating? Because it uh, one thing is it has been unsolved, but at the time in 1888, just a few years before that, is when transatlantic cable communication uh, kicked in. News cable communication. So what was happening was the first time that people, even in the United States, would see there's this unsolved murder going on. And it was also competitive newspapers were trying to kind of get an edge up on the other newspapers. So there was a tad bit of sensationalism. Pictures were being drawn. And so kind of the the whole uh, hype. And then what happened at that time was that Scotland Yard had the idea of publishing one of the Ripper letters, one particular letter that said Jack the Ripper. And when that happened, that uh, just caused uh, sensation everywhere. And then since it's been uh, unsolved, uh, people have been researching continually, and uh, it's been kind of now in almost folklore. Yeah. Yeah, legend for sure. Yes. We forgot to do this at the beginning of the program, which we like to do is just let you know who's coming up on the show. Tomorrow night, Andy Thomas will be here. He's a, a researcher and an author. He's going to be talking about mysteries and conspiracies. Um, he'll be talking about views on truth, any kind of mystery, global freedom issues. Uh, he talks about these things in lectures. He's written books about them, including conspiracy areas of all kinds, surveillance agendas. Jay, you and I have talked about that quite a bit, the surveillance Absolutely. stuff, you know, and how concerning that Anytime is. Anytime I, I lose a an email i just asked the uh, nsa to send it back to me yeah they're pretty good but they keep everything so yeah uh media misrepresentations which is another thing that people are talking about a lot and restrictions on free speech which again is a hot topic right now that's all tomorrow night it will be with the shark though bruce markerson will be sitting in for the two of us yes he will so make sure you tune in if you haven't yet head over to facebook.com slash beyond reality radio like the facebook page for us then head to beyondrealityradio.com. You can find all the stations we are on across the country. You can also download the free smartphone apps, which allow you to listen live, catch past shows, join the online chat, and more. We're in a night we're live. Just click the Listen Live button. You can listen right there from the website while uh, hanging out in an online chat room with a great community of people. And tonight we're talking with Michael Hawley. There's been news uh, about the Jack the Ripper uh, murders. Uh, it's an unsolved crime from 130, I think 130, 130 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and recent DNA tests may have pointed to the culprit. Uh, Michael Hawley is an expert on the subject, has written books on the subject, has explored it, has researched it, and uh, knows it inside and out. And Michael, again, thanks for being here. I want to get to the history of this shawl. It was, okay. it was this shawl from one of the victims, at least it's purported to be from one of the victims, that these DNA samples were taken from. Tell us about this shawl. Well, in 1988, a a man named Paul Harrison was researching uh, uh, an upcoming book. In 1988 is the 100-year anniversary, basically, of the Ripper murders of 1888. And so he heard about this John and Janice Dowler that had apparently uh, framed two pieces of of a shawl that was on one of the Ripper victims, uh, Catherine Eddowes. And so... uh, when uh, he uh, researched it, he found out that the great-great-nephew of one of the scout and yard acting sergeants at the time, Amos Simpson, apparently uh, the great-great-nephew, uh, his name is David Melville Hayes, said that his, uh, you know, his, uh, this uh, Amos Simpson had taken it from the, uh, the, the Ripper victim because he knew that it was a, a famous uh, murder and kept it in the family, so it was a family story. So what happened is Hayes traded that, uh, uh, well, the, the, the shawl is a silk shawl, eight foot by two foot. He cut a couple pieces off it and framed it and traded it to the Dowlers for uh, this first copy of the Radio Times magazine. And then, uh, so they had that. So then what happened was, is uh, in 1993, uh, David Hayes, donated the rest of it to uh, Scotland Yard's Black Museum. 
1996, the Dollars sold their piece to an antique dealer who in turn sold it to this uh, Indian Sioux parlor. So, but the Black Museum, what they decided to do, they wanted to, to test to see if it was from the Victorian era, and they actually had the uh, local, the Sotheby's, test it, and they found, they determined it was Edwardian, or 1900s, not the 1888. But uh, by 2007, uh, Russell Edwards had bought it at the uh, auction, and, uh, and so then that kind of started it, so, but... Russell Edwards claims that the Black Museum was saying that it was the real thing. What so, type of, uh, let me just inter- let me interrupt here. What type of testing can they do to make a differentiation between uh, early 20th century versus late 19th century? So, uh, would be just the design and the okay. material. Okay. And uh, so that's what they were doing. So it's not 100%, but they seem to think that it was more towards an Edwardian. But then what uh, Russell Edwards would say that he, they have others that would say it was Victorian. So he still had it tested uh, genetically, and what he did is he used a, uh, a geneticist from uh, Liverpool, John Lord University, uh, Jari Llewellyn, and, uh, and then he had a partner, David Miller, and they, ident- they apparently identified a, uh, you know, the blood stain and a semen stain, even though they didn't get any semen out of it, but they still got mitochondrial DNA. So not just regular nuclear DNA, so it follows the egg, so it has to be maternal. So they have to, when they do that, uh, they first tested it, and then they have to have a descendant, but it has to be a matrilineal descendant from the mother's mother's mother. And so what they claimed back in 2014 was that there was this rare mitochondrial DNA marker, 314.1C, uh, on the bloodstain that matched the descendant of um, Catherine Eddowes. Well, uh, what the ripperologists got that, and it's not that they're trying to debunk it. A lot of them really would like this because the uh, some uh, some of these ripperologists certainly did believe that uh, Aaron Kosminski was the killer. So a man named Chris Phillips and this Tracy Inson they realized that the geneticist got it wrong. It wasn't 314.1, it was 315.1, which is a common DNA marker. 99% of the European population have that. So we didn't hear anything more until March of 2019 when they published this in a peer-reviewed journal, Journal of Forensic Science. And both of them, in this time, they claimed that they said that although uh, th- I, I read the, uh, the entire thing, but they said although these characteristics are surely not unique, they fully support their hypothesis. And so, so then the press got a hold of that, and so now it's in the national news. Uh. So what happened, though, was that there was two major areas of problems with this. One is the genetics, and the other is the providence of the Shaw, uh, that we've known that there's a big problem with Catherine Eddowes having that shawl, and then the genetics. What happened is uh, that uh, some, uh, there's a uh, Jonathan Mangies uh, runs a uh, casebook rippercast, and he uh, collected some uh, top some of the top ripperologists, and they interviewed the top geneticists in England, forensic geneticist Dr. Turi King uh, from the University of Leicester, and she, uh, who who's actually the one that sequenced the whole genome of King Edward III. So she is the is the foremost expert, and so she explained what the fatal flaws in the genetics. And so there's two issues, and that's one of the things that I can talk about. I can even, so I can go into some of those. Well, yeah, um, and, we'll, and we'll definitely be talking about that. But now, didn't they tested this DNA on this thing with one of Kaminsky's living descendants? Correct, matrilineal. So Kaminsky did not have any descendants. So his sister's name was Matilda. So Matilda had a daughter and then daughtered. So what they did was they tested the matrilineal descendant of actually Matilda, and that's one of the problems is they didn't say that in the, the paper. That was um, discovered later. So, and so that's what they were claiming that the, the, those two DNAs matched. Now, you, yeah, you've kind of hinted at this as well, um, and I know that one of the biggest difficulties is is proving that this shawl actually belonged to that victim. What's right. the status, and what's the, what's the what are the odds that it actually was hers? Uh, almost impossible, because mm. first of all, the uh, Amos Simpson was a Scotland Yard patrol constable at the time, 
And uh, although, uh, and one of the problems is Catherine Eddowes was murdered in Mitre Square, which is under the jurisdiction of the City of London Police Department. And so they would not allow any Scotland Yard police officer near that. They didn't, the, the two police departments didn't get along well anyway, but Simpson was actually around at the time, but he was already on a beat a mile away in Scotland Yard jurisdiction, more in Whitechapel. This was not, this was in the city of London, which was really close, but uh, what had happened was is when Catherine Eddowes was murdered, there was a patrol constable there within minutes because the body was still steaming. And then right from that moment, it was a city of police patrol, patrol constable, right at that moment, uh, it was, his name was Harvey, uh, PC James Harvey, then multiple people were just surrounding the body until they, you know, escorted the body away. So there was no chance for Amos Simpson to take anything, and that so that would be one of the big issues is that he there would be no reason why he would be in Mitre Square. And what the interesting thing is, the paper never makes a comment about that. You know, you're supposed to put positive and negative things about that, even though they put some positive things, and then. Uh, also, in that case, that we have a complete itemized record and images drawn. Uh, uh, they have Catherine Eddowes in her death state, and there was an artist, uh, police artist, that drew it. Uh, complete detail, and there's no shawl there. Mm. And then the complete itemized list. They have everything to the color, the size, and there's no shawl in any of those records whatsoever. And then so... Um, then the last one of the other things is that uh, what they've identified is in that shawl, uh, in the blue indigo dye in the floral parts, is water soluble. That means anybody that's walking around at night with that, if it gets rained on, it's going to the, the, the dye is going to bleed. And then so, but we already know that where Catherine Eddowes was for the month before, she had left to a different uh, town to uh, do hop picking with her, her male friend, which didn't work. So they had to walk back to London's Whitechapel. And that day, they, uh, they had to, at 2 o'clock, they sold his shoes to get money to get something to eat. So if she has this silk shawl and they sold his shoes, you would think that she would probably sell that thing. Yeah. And, then so, and then what happened was is uh, she... Uh, claimed that she went to her daughter's Annie, who was an adult at the time, to get money. But what she really did was, is uh, um, she got completely drunk at 8:30 uh, p.m. is when uh, one of the patrol constables saw her kind of just drunk on the ground. So they brought her in the jail jail cell to uh, kind of um, to uh, you know wait until she kind of can walk on her own. And then that's kind of what happened when they let her go. Soon after that is when she was murdered. But there was there would be really no possibility of the shawl. So then, so that was 2014 when that's what uh, and everybody was talking about. This was uh, Catherine Eddowes' shawl. So then, reading the article, I realized now what they're saying is no, they are they are under the theory that it was. Aaron Kosminski's shawl. So he brought this silk shawl to the murder to kill her. And while he eviscerated the uh, organs and ripped off and cut a piece of the apron of uh, Catherine Eddowes, and then that fell in another place, he left the shawl. And, you know, I'm, you know it's kind of like just really kind of bizarre. Yeah. So the provenance of that shawl is just, it's always been highly questionable. Does, um, a situation like this, and I'm not even sure it would do any good. Uh, maybe the DNA isn't uh, is too degraded, but does a situation like this, and is it even possible to an ex- do an exhumation to um, to determine whether the DNA is a is a match with the victim? Well, they don't really. I mean, they could still do this properly. Is uh, let's say they use the descendant of uh, one of them, the matrilineal. So the descendant. Now they're using mitochondrial DNA. They could not get any nuclear DNA or, but the mitochondrial DNA. And the problem with the semen. Remember, Y chromosome is the male thing. That's in the head. So they have to could, right. could only use the tail of the 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 you know the semen to get the mitochondrial DNA. So, but. 
they could still use the descendants. And here's why it was, it's an issue, and that's why Dr. Terry King was talking about this. Is besides that, you know, a peer-reviewed article is designed for peer experts to review it, all the data and the conclusion results, and put their two cents into it. Well, they hid the data. They can't see the data. They're most of the data. They're mm-hmm. not allowing it. And this is a peer-reviewed article, so she's wondering why they allowed this to be in the article. Yeah. And then she said that that uh, the geneticist that did the testing is is actually not an expert, uh, not an expert at this field, which is forensic science, as she is. And then so he's an expert in let's say uh, a different area. So why is he doing it when there are experts that are doing this? And so then. Uh, what happened was is that she, so she looked at the the DNA stuff, the process, the procedures, and they've they've made a number of mistakes. And I could kind of talk about that. But one of the biggest, uh, the fatal mistake is that when they looked at the mitochondrial DNA supposedly from Aaron Kosminski that was on the semen stain, and they tested it with the matrilineal descendant of Aaron Kosminski, that there were two marker differences and she was stunned because she goes i don't know if he realizes that but that's a mismatch it's not a match oh. we're talking tonight with michael hawley he's an author and a researcher michael l com is his website he's written many books a couple or a few on uh, the jack the ripper story including the ripper's haunts dr francis tumblety uh the ripper's hell uh, broth and Jack's Lantern. I know that uh, this story that we're talking about tonight, we've got a lot more to discuss. But we have a couple minutes here before our next break, Michael. Tell us um, some of the things you're involved. With. I know you just you just were doing some filming over in the UK, weren't you? Uh, yes, I was on the Travel Channel. Uh, there was a uh, an episode, a new series called The Legend Hunter, and it was January 20th. Though sh- there should be some, uh, you can, I guess you can go on the Travel Channel to see it. And what it was is uh, Pat Spain, the host, they, they uh, were doing, uh, looking for, a, again, it's a show on legends, and they wanted to do Jack the Ripper, and they were very interested in the, uh, the new information that was discovered that uh, I spoke with you, uh, you about last year with, uh, with Francis Tumbley, the damning information. So, uh, and then what had happened was they found a, there was another letter that came up that was in the, uh, given to a, uh, a Scotland Yard, uh, retiree in the 1960s and, uh, that, uh, that they were looking at to match up and that kind of matched up with Francis Tumbley. And then, uh, but that was the, the show that we did. So then, uh, but we have a, a little documentary coming out for Francis Tumbley that we're going to be doing in, uh, this, this year, uh, also with uh, an Irish film director, Jason Figgis. So that's exciting. Is it going to be a feature-length documentary? Uh, this one uh, w- is not a feature-length. As a matter of fact, thanks to your last show, I was connected, contacted uh, by uh, some people that want to do a feature film. And so we did a screenplay. And then, uh, strangest thing in the world, uh, the person that was uh, pushing this, uh, sadly, he had passed from cancer oh, uh, uh, in uh, August. So, uh, but that's been kind of passed on, and so we still have some of this this material. So that's still pretty kind of hot going on. And in the meantime, I'm still doing uh, lots of research with my research assistant uh, Brian Young here, and then we've uh, we've got a new article coming out called Tumbledy Secret, which uh, we just discovered that. Uh, not only did Francis Tumbley have antisocial personality do- or disorder, neurosyphilis. Mm. So, uh, and we have uh, some kind of surprising evidence to support that. And that, and that's one of the things that uh, that uh, that Jack the Ripper possibly was murdering these women because he had acquired that from them or something to that effect. Yeah, that wouldn't be exactly Tumbley, but uh, there is a, a lot of story about that as well. But. Uh, all right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And our guest, Michael Hawley, we're talking about Jack the Ripper. A lot more to come. You listen to Jason and JV Beyond Reality Radio. We'll be back after this. Looking for our guest's book? Go to Amazon.com slash shop slash JVJ Taps. So I can't remember. Were you a fan of that Netflix movie, Bird Box? I thought it was pretty good. I, I Yeah, there were some weird little parts here and there, but I thought for all in all, it was pretty good. 
I am not a Sandra Bullock fan, uh, so that made made it a little. You made that clear, back yeah. Then. Then. <laughs> <laughs> I'm about to make it clear again, uh, so that made it hard for me to get into it. But at the beginning, I actually was wrapped up in it pretty quickly. Uh, but then I felt like it went nowhere, and the ending was so predictable to me. Um, but the ending was pretty predictable. I, I had actually called it out to the kids yeah. and it, it, during the show. I'm like, "Wow, this kind of sucks." Because if you're blind, everybody's going to be uh, perfectly fine. Right. right. What happens at the end? Everybody's blind. Yeah. You know, spoiler. Yeah, alert. Yeah, spoiler alert. Yeah. Um, so, but but it really it seemed to be uh, quite a craze, and it, it got a lot of views on Netflix. Something like 45 million views in the first week or something. And then everybody was out doing the bird box challenge where they would do things blindfolded, which was silly. Kids driving cars and just idiotic. Well, they've just announced that the author of the book, the original book, which was also called Bird Box, um, is writing a sequel to it. And he is not saying whether or not it will be a movie, but I mean, Sandra Bullock is already being talked about to uh, reprise the role. So I think that um, I think we can expect a Bird Box 2 or a sequel in some fashion. Well, I don't even know how they would do it. It's what's going to be the plot behind it. You pluck your eyes out. Well, um, what, the, safe? what the author says is that um, they're going to go into more detail about what the monsters are, which I think is kind of important because that was one of my criticisms criticisms of the of the first movie is that we don't really know what what it was you know that, yeah it came out of nowhere yeah it could have been some demonic thing or whatever uh but we don't know all we know is that if you saw it you you died um so it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out it's always uh fascinating to watch something that that you know hits by storm and then i don't think there was a sequel ever planned for it but now there will be one, so we'll see how it works. Well, I'll, I'll definitely check it out. And, you know, I know, but I, I know your love for Sandra Bullock, so the, I'm sure the, you'll... Yeah, the original discussion here is that it will not be a Netflix movie. It'll probably be something they have to go to the theater to see, or at least, you know, that'll be a theatrical release in the beginning and then do the Which rounds. I find funny, because all the major movie uh, companies out there were, like, tearing it apart. Yeah. Because, yeah. of course, they don't want Netflix to start, you know, yeah. tromping in on, on their territory. Right. Right. Well, the whole thing, the whole landscape has changed. Um, we've got a great show underway tonight. We're talking with Michael Hawley about uh, the Jack the Ripper slayings and the mystery that still uh, surrounds that uh, those occurrences from 1888. There's a lot to talk about with him. Tomorrow night, we've got um, Andy Thomas joining us. He's a researcher and an author on mysteries and conspiracies. We'll be talking about things like surveillance agendas, media misrepresentations, um Restrictions on free speech. These are all things that are very, very much in the mainstream uh, discussion right now, uh, all over social media, obviously. But people are concerned about all of these things. And tomorrow night, Andy will discuss them right here on the program. Yeah, sharks should be filling in. And uh, so make sure you tune in. If you haven't yet, head over to Facebook.com slash Beyond Reality Radio. Check that Facebook page out for us. Then head to uh, beyondrealityradio.com where you can find all the stations we are on. You can download the free smartphone apps and much, much more. If you download the show from iTunes or anywhere else, which we know it's it's being downloaded tens of thousands of times a day, we greatly appreciate the support. You can just take a moment of your time and rate it for us. It helps push the show forward, makes it easier to find, and that's what it's all about is getting the word out. All right, so our guest is Michael Hawley. He's written several books about Jack the Ripper and those notorious crimes, The Ripper's Haunts, uh, Dr. Francis Tumblety, who we're going to continue to talk about tonight, The Ripper's Hellbroth, and Jack's Lantern, and Michael, um, we're talking about DNA evidence. Mm-hmm. The report that has uh, resurfaced, because it, it was originally discussed in, in 2014, and it has come back, and it's been in a quote-unquote peer-reviewed journal, um, talking about DNA evidence that links uh, um, Jack the Ripper's DNA to uh, Barber Aaron Kosminski. Yeah. And, um, you know, we've been talking about this, and one of the things you keep bringing up is the mitochondrial DNA versus nuclear DNA. Explain to us, to us why that's important in this discussion. Well, the mitochondrial DNA uh, is passed on um, through the egg, and it doesn't change. So nuclear DNA, you know, so you, you know, get half from mom, half from dad, but then brothers and sisters won't have identical because of recombination. So there's going to be mixes. So, but mitochondrial DNA doesn't change. Now, the issue with my father's mitochondrial DNA came from his mom, but my mitochondrial DNA came from my mom. So we have different mitochondrial DNA, although we have the same Y chromosome sex DNA. So the 
Y chromosome follows the, the name, basically, the father, father's father. But they couldn't identify any of that type of DNA but mitochondrial DNA, and that's what they had said they tried to do. They also only tested one cell, and that's what uh, Dr. Terry King says is a, is a difficult thing. Contamination is a serious problem with that. But what happens is, is uh, the, uh, the, when the Aaron Kosminski's sister, uh, Matilda, had a daughter, and then that daughter had another one, and that's who they tested. And so even though they don't want to give the name out, but that's the matrilineal descendant. And so what uh, Dr. King said is when you only have two or three generations, there the mitochondrial DNA will have basically zero mistakes or at worst one. And what uh, the results that, that uh, the geneticist got were two markers or mistakes. You know, so two markers that on the, the mitochondrial DNA, that what they were using was they were using a, a mitochondrial bit. Now, there's this microscopic stuff that's only 100 letters long, really teeny, and what they have to do is they have, they, it's called PCR amplification, is they have to make millions of copies of this thing. So then what they have to do is after they make the millions of copies, then they've got to read it, and that's what is sequencing, and they have to do it forward and backwards so they're so what they're looking at is a 100% match when they look forward compared, you know, from the copy, and then they will reverse and it's supposed to be a 100% match. Once they get a 100% match forward and reverse, then they're confident that they got the right one because there's so much contamination and also different parts uh, of different markers. And so what happened, though, in this case is when they went forward, they got a 100% match. When went backwards, they got 99.2% match, and Dr. King had said, uh, to the to the uh, on Rippercast when the, he, she was talking to the uh, the Ripperologist that that means that there's something wrong and the it's the responsibility of the scientist to report what's going on there and she said that when she ever gets that they discard it and do it again so they can get the hundred hundred they used it so what they did is they ignored the ninety nine point two percent stuff and they used the 100% match side and assumed that this was correct. And that's right there was, is what she called was bad science. So it's what we're looking at the mitochondrial DNA. And the other issue with the mitochondrial DNA is that it's populations. Uh, so basically, Caucasians have the same mitochondrial DNA. Now, there are some markers that are different. And so what had happened was is that when you look at, let's say, people will do a mitochondrial DNA for your, let's say, your family ancestry, mm-hmm. and what happens is they don't get an exact match of anything. They don't match, let's say, for example, Aaron Kosminski is supposed to have been a uh, Polish-Russian Jew, which means that's a, that would be considered an Ashkenazi Jew uh, for, uh, that um, during the diaspora, when the Jewish diaspora went into the Eastern Europe, and then in 1882 is when... Uh, Aaron Kosminski came to England, and so when they what they did was is they did two testings on this. They one tested they tested the matrilineal descendant, matched it up with that uh, that semen stain, but then also what they did is they took that and they tested it on a database, and kind of like an Ancestry.com kind of dad, database. And what they were looking for to see if it was Ashkenazi. Ashkenazi Jewish uh, DNA. Well, they claim they got that, but when uh, uh, researcher Chris Phillips went in there, they realized that in that that uh, data bank, there was only one match, and that match was not Jew; it was Gentile, and so that confused us. And what uh, Doctor uh, Doctor King was saying is that it's all about frequency. Now, that marker may have a high frequency with the Ashkenazi Jewish population, but it has low frequency with every, uh, so many other places, maybe even high frequency somewhere else. So the, that your, your particular descendant could be of, let's say, came from Latvia or somewhere else that is not even Ashkenazi Jewish. 
And so she says that you can't just absolutely say it's 100% correct. So when the news was saying that you know we they have just identified, you just can't do that. And it's actually, you could see that the authors knew that. That's why they kind of said that although these characteristics are surely not unique, they fully support the hypothesis. Well, they're not unique, and they don't support it, especially with, uh, when the, there were two uh, differences in that. Let's um, let's talk for just a minute here about this particular suspect. I mean, we've we've talked about the DNA component here, and you've mentioned uh, basically his heritage. But who was this guy, and why was he uh, uh, someone who was considered a suspect back in 1888 to begin with? Well, Eric Kaczynski uh, was mentioned by some of the top um, scout and yard uh, police officials, and the first time, 1894. Chief Constable Melville McNaughton, who took over. So he was at, after the, the last murder, there were murders the next year that they actually thought were uh, uh, White Ripper murders, and McNaughton was in charge. But my 1894, he was talking in his memoranda, and he made a comment about this Polish Jew that resident and named, and named him as Kaczynski and said that uh, he is a strong suspect because he... You know, he had a hatred of women and homicidal tendencies, and that he was removed to a lunatic asylum about March 1889, which is about, uh, you know, six months after the murders. So that's where the name came up. But McNaughton then rejected him and opted for another person named um, Druitt. Yet Chief Inspector uh, Swanson, who was kind of running the Whitechapel murder at the time, and his boss, who was the assistant commissioner Anderson, they championed uh, Kaczynski as their favorite. And what they did was there was a particular uh, eyewitness that was with one of the murders that they believed saw Jack the Ripper, and they took that person who was a fellow Jewish person and uh, showed him Aaron Kaczynski and said that that was the killer, but refused to. Uh, go to court, so got away. And so what happened basically was then uh, uh, Aaron Kaczynski went into a lunatic asylum, this uh, Colney Hatch lunatic asylum, that the next year. Uh, well, actually, 1891, he was readmitted because he only went to the, the asylum initially in March 1889 for just three weeks. And so the uh, so that's why he is considered one of the uh, a significant suspect because there's Scott Yard uh, officials that, in hindsight, believe that that was the killer. Now there are some mistakes, and then uh, that uh, they are making. So it's not there's not a definitely he. Uh, we can't say he was uh, Jack the Ripper, but we can say that we can't uh, negate him because he is a credible suspect. And in 1988, when uh, they, um, the shawl came into kind of like the unknowing, uh, understanding that there's a shawl around, the top, the top uh, suspect at the time was Aaron Kaczynski, because in 1988, there was a special that Peter Ustinov had, and it was called The Secret Identity of Jack the Ripper, and they had a panel of experts and these ripperologists, who are still the top ripperologists, Martin Flato, Paul Begg, and Don Rumbelow, they kind of told these panel of experts, FBI experts, British experts, uh, about these and gave them the details, and the experts selected Aaron Kaczynski as who they believed. You know, they used William Gull, and they used Druitt, and then, uh, but at the time, today we have, you know, they did not know about Francis Tumbley at the time, because he kind of came back in the scene in the 1990s. And then there's other ones, like George right. Hutchinson, and then there's, there's the uh, Maybrick Diary, Maybrick. There's so, so a number of other really credible suspects that have popped up that makes the whole Ripperology scene very exciting. And, uh, but, but all of us say this, is you can't ignore Kaczynski. This, uh, sorry about this, Michael. It's a very, very short break because we or segment because we went long in the last segment. But I wanted to ask you about the semen evidence that is reportedly on this shawl. Was was there? Uh, I mean, this is the first I'm kind of hearing of of that evidence being there. Um, do we know that all these crimes had a sexual component to them that would produce that kind of evidence? 
Uh, the answer is we they did not. Uh, yeah. It looks to be that I mean what there was quick evisceration. So Catherine Eddowes, they uh, once got there. It was like uh, the, there was a patrol constable that goes by every fifteen minutes. First time no, saw nobody. Second time her body's been eviscerated. So there was no chance of that. And then so when you look at that, uh, especially Dr. Uh, Brent Turvey, who was uh, he's a, a modern forensic scientist that had looked at that, he noticed he did not see any sadosexual anything. Sadistic behavior is mutilation while they're alive so that you can see the pain in the person. It is, uh, it's been confirmed that these women were murdered, for, uh, killed first, and throats cut, and then they were eviscerated. And then so it was like they had a purpose. And one of them uh, was anger retaliatory was the motive that uh, Dr. Turvey had uh, uh, brought out. Phone number is 844-687-7669. We're talking with Michael Hawley about the Jack the Ripper slayings and the ongoing mystery and a report that has resurfaced because it was out originally in 2014 that some DNA testing may have uh, found the actual uh, person responsible for those murders. Um, Our guest tonight, Michael Hawley, has a lot of problems with that report and that information. And one of the things we're talking about was uh, the bodily fluids found on the shawl. And you're saying, and we had to cut you off, you're saying, Michael, that these crimes, there wasn't enough time for those types of fluids to be deposited anywhere. Uh, So how could they be some evidence of any kind? Or that if they they may have, let's say, my point is that they didn't because they were not sex crimes. But if they were, let's say, for example, if you were a proponent of Eric Kaczynski, then you would say sadosexual, even though uh, Dr. Turvey uh, rejects that. But you could still say that because we do know that Eric Kaczynski, the reason why they said he went insane is because of self-mutilation, or which was basically masturbation, and that sadosexual serial killers tend to have a higher rate of masturbation, and that's kind of the, the idea. So that the fact that, that that stain was on the shawl, if it was owned by Aaron Kaczynski, he didn't necessarily have to do it then. So, JV, very possibly, you're a serial killer. <laughs> I'm not sure what that means. Um, <laughs> so, moving on. Yeah, let me let me ask this, Mike. Uh, have you ever looked into the whole idea? A good friend of ours has been on the show many times, Jeff Mudgett, who um, wrote a book and also did a show um, talking about how he believed his great-great-grandfather, H.H. Holmes, the serial killer, happened to be Jack the Ripper. Right. Uh, yes, actually, and then uh, and we actually talked about it a little bit last time too. The uh, there are some issues with that. A lot of the experts, ripperologists, uh, uh, they don't uh, consider that as strong as uh, what uh, Jeff would like to have been. One, for example, the idea that uh, uh, that H.H. Uh, H. Holmes was in Chicago during the summer of 1888. No record of him here in the fall of 1888. Uh, and then, uh, therefore, he was in uh, England uh, murdering these women. And so, um, but then, but we do have uh, um, the, the, he forgot to look at the voting records because it was 1888. And uh, we have record of him being in Chicago in voting. And also one of his sons was born nine months after October 1888. So maybe his wife had, you know, it was not really his son, but that means he should have. You know, his wife was in Chicago at the time. But there were a number of other big uh, issues that, like when I watched the show, that they did this uh, uh, composite of like 15 or so eyewitness accounts, and the person looked almost identical to H.H. H. Holmes. And the problem is, is nobody saw the murders. And, and uh, so no one saw the murders. And there is no eyewitness accounts of the murders. And that's what... Uh, the uh, uh, Melville McNaughton, Chief Constable McNaughton, was trying to say that he had said that nobody saw the murders, even though there are some people uh, that had possibly seen, uh, let's say, Catherine Eddowes just before. And like, there are three witnesses that saw Catherine Eddowes at just outside of Mitre Square. So, uh, but they they admitted they didn't see her face; they just thought that was her. So then, then they weren't really thinking Jack the Ripper's with her. So when they're looking, they are not like thinking about that. And then so, uh, and when we look at those uh, the suspect eyewitness testimonies of those particular uh, fifteen 
they are very general, as in height, maybe color, and it was always dark. And then, uh, and so the next thing you know, nobody has a facial features. And I just remember in that show, the facial features look, the eyes look just like Holmes. And so I think that was a little bit of a movie magic thing. So, but one thing though, we still we do prom- promote for sure is make sure he keeps on researching because if he's going to find some more stuff, that's what we need because it's all about reliable knowledge. And so the problem is, is there's always people wanting to, you know, put out some conspiracy theories without any data. So, but uh, it's, you know, it's always important to keep on the research. Do you, you know, we've had people comment about the shawl idea here, too, and you referenced it a bit that some theorize it may have been Jack the Ripper's shawl. Uh, and someone said that there's been speculation that Jack the Ripper used to use things like shawls or clothes or something to lure the women. Is there any truth to that that you're aware of? Uh, no, not at all. It would, and if you look at the where the women were uh, murdered, they're right off off the beaten path of the two busy streets, Whitechapel Road and Commercial Street, and uh, and when you look at that, it would that's where the the prostitutes were. Not just you know full time prostitutes, just unfortunates that women that would you know part do it part time whatever, and then they would have to go off the beaten paths because because they didn't want to get caught, and then so but to to lure them, uh, they all wanted money. It wasn't uh, anything else. These women were selling that kind of stuff for money stuff, but the uh the case with uh um that i haven't heard much of that could it be maybe but there's really no direct evidence for that so based on our you know everything we've talked about here and based on how you've refuted so much of the claims that these dna tests and the and the people that conducted them are offering um it sounds like you're still fully in the camp of dr francis tumblety being the uh culprit Yes, but I always say never case closed. Uh, if I do that, then I'm a done. I'm done researching, and then so uh, uh, so what I do is I keep on finding more material, and I love having the the great thing about the Ripperology community is these uh, they they don't give you an inch, and so especially you know the the biggest uh, the the reviewer one of the top researchers Paul Begg he reviewed both my books and he is not nobody would say he was a tumbledy uh, proponent. And he was—he uh, actually had said that my book, uh, my first book was Head and Shoulders Above the Rest, and the second one is the go-to book for Tumblety. We got to take him seriously. So he didn't say he's Jack the Ripper. We'll never do that. I mean, uh, there is really—I mean, there's a dozen confession letters. Um, like uh, so, um, to find out who he is exactly. That would be quite difficult. And so they tried to do that with the DNA stuff, which is uh, again, that's a, a great thing to research but there's so many holes in it that uh that they uh, have to go back to the drawing board on that and especially when they're assuming it's a semen stain they're assuming it's a blood stain stain that in the in the article they don't it's not yeah. like confirmed with that as well where do you as a researcher and somebody who is just passionate about finding the answers here where do you continue looking? What stones have not yet been unturned? Oh, well, Tembley, it's amazing. There's just more. As I just found out, we just, uh, my, my article is uh, like uh, 13,000 words. And, and so it's, it's ready for, I'm almost ready for a third book. And then we're finding so much. But one of the things that you can do is, uh, in the Ripperology world, there are places that, there are authors, researchers, but then there are people that kind of like uh, hold the gate, as in, Let's say, for example, uh, this JTR forums uh, run by Howard Brown. He collects everything, and it's on there. So what I do is I'll just go into his website and look at some of the material. And a lot of it is people have seen, but you don't. If you're not, if you don't know the background of Tumblety, you don't know what date. And that's one of the things I know: which particular date, where he was, what he was doing, and then why is that there? So then, if I find a little red flag. Then I go for it, and then that's uh, has helped me out quite a bit. And then uh, so, and it just depends. Like in the uh, um, that, it is funny how here it is, a hundred and thirty year old mystery, and we're still finding so much. As I said last last year, nine hundred pages of sworn testimony, forty six plus sworn testimonies on Francis Tumbley in the last twenty years of his life. That was just an eye opener, and it really it basically confirmed what Stuart Evans had said all along when he was discovered Tumbley in 1992 that he was taken seriously as a suspect, and we should. And then uh, 
Does it say? Does it have a picture of the uh, Ripper victims? No, <laughs> but <laughs> it's got some. I mean, damning evidence. As I was saying, he's telling people that all streetwalkers should be disemboweled, and he says that before the murders. That's pretty amazing to is, me. Is but. that is that shawl, um, which obviously its authenticity is questioned right now, but is that the only uh, piece of physical evidence that exists That's that we can uh, – is there anything else we can substantiate? Well, so far they've, dis- it, they've really destroyed all the records. And now some of the records, like uh, the special branch has some records. They were not directly involved with the Whitechapel murders, but they were indirectly involved. But those are still closed to us, so, and so lots, we, we would just love to have those. But with physical evidence, that's the problem. And so when the shawl came up, that was quite exciting because, you know, the family, uh, you know, it, to me, probably what happened is that here's a man that was a police constable in Scouting Yard during the murders, and so... You can see, you know, things get passed on to the family, stories that maybe not exactly true, but they do pass on. Even in my family, they said that there was a judge in the family, and I found out that was just a complete lie. <laughs> so, right. so uh, but like, uh, so, the, uh, so it's got to be corroborated, and so that's, that's the thing. So we do find everything. So, uh, so for example, on, um, uh, for, they found there was uh, a show that, uh, they uh, had Francis Tumbley's hat, and there was a gun inside it, an old hat. And so I could have corroborated that, but they didn't ask, ask me about that because we've been doing so much research on the, the descendants of all Tumbley's families to, to corroborate that hat. Uh, that hat was sold for, I think, $10,000 recently you said it was on a show what what do you mean it was on a show like a tv uh, show yeah i'm trying to uh, uh pawn stars there it is it was on pawn stars. oh well and, that's and interesting so here it is i'm watching in uh francis tumbley's hat and then so so i'm looking at it and then francis tumbley it was a top hat and uh he he always went to the shows the the performances and uh and then even in uh from rochester to buffalo everywhere he was he was going there so and then remember, I think I told you before, 1863, he was in Buffalo watching um, uh, John Wilkes Booth, who was performing in Buffalo. Right. And so hanging out with John Wilkes Booth. And so, of course, you know, Tumbley was implicated two years later, but he denied knowing Booth. So, but then, uh, but yeah, so that top hat. So I, we co- tried to contact Pawn Stars and say, the, they bought it for 4000 and they sold it for ten. And we said we could, I could help verify if that's correct because wherever they found it, I could see if that was actually a family member because Tumbley had all of his material in Rochester. His, sis, his niece, uh, Mary Fitzsimmons, co- uh, was the one that stored all of this stuff. And he was a millionaire, uh, and so, but he traveled all over the place and he couldn't bring everything. So I went back to Rochester, and that's what we found out is the, the buildings have all since been destroyed, so who knows where all this material is. And then, uh, so, trying to look for his old uterus collection, too, but <laughs> that, oh, that wow. won't happen. Wow. So, um, what do we need to find to, to put this case to bed? Is there something out there that you suspect exists that we're just, you know, o- opening up the right trunk and the right attic away from finding? I don't think there will be. Uh, I, the way I see it is that uh, it's, we're, you need to collect as much reliable knowledge as possible to get paint a better picture, and that's what's going to be as close as we can get. The but then again, in the future, let's say I mean one of the things that uh, Doctor uh, Terry King was talking about is we have you know if that shawl, if the descendants were even in the same room, you can breathe DNA out, yeah. and so there's contamination. So it's really hard that chain of custody to find that. So. Um, but what happened 25 years ago, there was a diary found, and it was the Maybrick Diary, and many people are convinced. If you read that, it certainly sounds like he's Jack the Ripper, and that, uh, and then they're trying to date the diary. So there are some, but there's, uh, so we, we keep on going that way, but there are some problems with it as well. But of course there's going to be. So, but, uh, 
So mm. I would say no in, uh, in, in one respect. But we were surprised when we got 900 pages of new material <laughs> for Dumbledore. But as we get as we get further and further into the future from from these crimes, I'm, we're running out of leads. We're running out of uh, things like that. So, will we ever truly know? Yeah, right, right. So it'll uh, and then who knows? You know, some kind of new technology can. That'd be interesting if you could pick up the memories of something. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, you know, we've spent the whole time talking about this uh, Jack the Ripper case. You do other work too. Um, uh, anything else you have you've got going on that you want to share with us? Uh, just uh, the I continue to do the uh, research with uh, Francis Tumblety because there's there's actually more going on, and I've got partners and that are uh, working on it because there are some gaps in time that we can find out, especially where Tumbledy was in 1887, 1888 uh, in London area. And we've, we've come up with some cool things, but uh, I'm, I'm not, at, I'm not allowed to talk about that yet. <laughs> Interesting. So, Interesting. Tease but, us yeah. there, but you'll come back and you'll share it with us, right? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for coming and hanging out with us, Michael. It's always a pleasure talking with you, and uh, we look forward to having you on again. Well, thank you very much. Hey, Jay, you hungry? I just heated up a couple potatoes. Here, let me grab them out of the microwave. No, JV, don't. Ah, my thumb. Ah, my thumb. Don't let this happen to you. Crapco's Thumbrella is the perfect protection for the perfect unfinger. The Crapco Thumbrella is made up of high-quality heat-resistant asbestos and perfectly suited to handle the most dangerous jobs. Just don't breathe near it. The Crapco Thumbrella. Use the Thumbrella for ultimate thumb protection while using matches, pouring coffee, sunbathing near the pool, changing spark plugs, handling kill-fired ceramics, and so much more. And how about those romantic candlelit dinners? Come over here, baby. Watch the candle. Don't worry, I brought protection. Thanks, Thumbrella. <laughs> the Crapco Thumbrella usually sells for $29.95, but call now and we'll triple your order. One for each thumb. And with every order today, Crapco will donate 30 cents to safety. Save a forgotten thumb international. The Crapco Thumbrella is the only safety-approved thumb protection device on the market. And isn't your thumb worth it? The Crapco Thumbrella should not be considered a thumb protection device and is illegal in some states. In fact, most states. In fact, all states. Do you remember those dark days when my thumb was injured? And I do. Uh, I, I, do. I could barely function. It was weeks. I mean, it, was it, weeks of it took you like four times as long to send a text. <laughs> And, and I, it already takes me long enough. So <laughs> no. you add, multiply that by four. It's like a week to get a text out. Oh, geez. Well, a big shout out and a thanks to uh, Michael Hawley for coming on, hanging out with us tonight and just talking about Jack the Ripper. And uh, it's it's such an interesting topic. And again, I mean, just how long ago it was, unless something major happens. I, that's why I think there's got to be like a letter in a trunk somewhere in London. Somebody saying, hey, I'm Jack the Ripper. Yeah, so, or, or, or even like hair samples from the victims or something like that, you know, in a scrapbook kind of thing. You know, that could happen. I mean, that's, that's the only way it's going to be solved, right? Yeah. Jeez. Oh, creepy. But anyways, and uh, just remember that uh, Bruce uh, the shark is going to be uh, filling in tomorrow, so he'll be here taking your calls and doing interviews and doing what he does best. Uh, if you haven't yet, head over to facebook.com slash Radio, Like that Facebook page for us. Then head to beyondrealityradio.com find all the stations we are on, get our free smartphone apps, uh, you know, listen live right from the website and more. Uh, and also subscribe to the show on iTunes so you can download it for uh, listening later. Just take two seconds of your time when you do and rate it for us. It helps push it forward, makes it easier to find, and it really helps us out greatly. But that's going to do it for us. You're listening to Jason and JV, Beyond Reality Radio. We'll catch you all soon. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.